Hello and welcome to the 170th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they're going to start making games, what the influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves are shown initially focused on the developers themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Shadowhand by Grey Alien Games. Jake and Helen, who are you and what do you do? Would you like to go first, Helen? Sure. Um, hello, my name's Helen Carmichael. I'm a game designer and I've been working on Shadowhand for the last two years. And prior to that, I made Regency Solitaire. Uh, I'm Jake Burkett. I've been an indie developer since 2005. And Shadowhand was actually my 11th game. And it, actually, I made a lot of casual games in the past. And th- this game is really a sort of crossover game that was suitable for Steam. So it's got a lot, lot more systems and things which I'm sure we'll get into in a minute. Indeed we shall. But before we do, let's find out a little bit more about you, you both, Jake and Helen. So how did you make your start doing this? When, how did you make your start making video games? Helen, you started first, so you can start again. How did you make sure. your start? Uh, well, to be honest, um, uh, Jake is also my husband as well as my co-developer on the games. Mm. So um, for many years, I actually had my own separate career as a science writer, which, which was my main training and experience. Um, so I did that for a long time, and I was uh, kind of supporting in the background watching Jake's career in game development progress. Um, but eventually, a few years ago, we were having a discussion, and I came up with an idea for a game myself, uh, which was Regency Solitaire. And um, it was a good crossover with some of the other game ideas that Jake had previously worked on, specifically Solitaire games. So... We went and tried to get some funding um, so that we could create a part-time position for myself so that I could learn how to be a game designer and get involved in making that game. So I've only really been working in games for a little over three years, three and a half years, something like that. So that's my background. And prior to that, obviously you had an interest in, in games, otherwise you wouldn't be able to do this. Yes, any... but... Was an inkling sidelines. Indeed. Um, well, I was always fascinated by what Jake did, but it also um, did very complex because he's he's done a lot of work as an indie designer, which I'm sure he'll tell you about. And so mm. he really has put all parts of the game design um, and the business side of things together himself. That seemed very complicated. And as someone who's interviewed a lot of people working in science and technology about their businesses and careers, I could see how how difficult it was. Um, I haven't really got involved in the coding side of things, although I did learn to code as a child, actually, um, at a very simple level, but I didn't, mm. didn't proceed with it. But I am very interested in uh, the game worlds, in research, because we make historical games, so I've done lots of research, and in the sort of writing and dialogue and character side of things. So that's, that's where my interest comes in. The, the research is really is quite fascinating because um, the old uh, cliché fact is strange in a fiction. Um, it's a cliché because it's true. That's what clichés make clichés. Um, and they did interesting things, and we'll talk about that later on, especially uh, the, the period in which Shadowhand is set. Uh, yeah. their the, the way of thinking is even though it's two or three hundred years it's still although in grand scheme of things a very short period of time for us human beings it's an astonishingly long time uh, and uh, things have changed rapidly but we'll talk about that later um, I'm be thinking about the cadence of language but we'll talk about it later um, yeah. so what about you Jake obviously you've been playing and making games for some time when was your first furtive steps into the realm of flashy lighty video games well, I remember it clearly, actually, to this day. I think I was, well, seven or eight, and right. I went round a friend's house, and they had a Spectrum 48K, and they were playing a game which only years later I realized was a game called Jumping Jack, very basic game. Mm. And anyway, I thought this thing was kind of pretty interesting. And then a year or so later, um, I persuaded my dad to get me a Spectrum for you know, one of these joint Christmas birthday presents. And, you know, because uh, games cost a lot of money back then, and because the Spectrum came in the manual, I learned to program it. So I used to sort of make funny little games. Um, and later on, I had a Commodore 64 and an Amiga, and I kept coding games as a hobby for 20 mm. years, actually. Mm. Um, 
And for the first 10 years of my professional career, I made business software, but, but games as a hobby. And eventually when I was 30, I said to Helen, hey, you know, I want to give this a go full time, um, full time indie developer. I don't know if we, we even called indies then. But anyway, um, and that's what I did. So, you know, and luckily I've managed to keep doing that for sort of um, 12, 13 years now. Um, and it's going pretty good. I'm not one of these um, indies who st struck it big. In fact, I did a talk at GDC called The No Hit Wonder about that very topic. But I have been able to survive. And that is good because, you know, I'm doing what I want to do, um, you know, and enjoying it. Yeah, well, you, it's either that or not. Do you even want to be that? Sorry, sorry. That was. I just wanted a bit of satire there. Sorry. I didn't, well, you know, I, I'm I'm willing to try the experiment of two and a half billion dollars and see whether I, you know, go I'm, insane. Yes, yeah, and turn into a monster. I'm okay to try the experiment. You know, yeah. for science. Um, yeah, for science. But um, no, and that's a wonderful sort of background. And very common for British developers to say it is. Yes, my first foray was uh, sitting in front of a ZX81 stroke Spectrum soak. Or Acorn, if yeah. um, uh, you know BBC, if they're really middle class. Um, I have to admit that although I didn't get into coding when I was young, my early experience obviously had something to do with dialogue in video games because me and my friends did hack into Granny's garden on the school computer and changed all the words. Uh, so, so, so even at an early stage, I was interested in that. Yeah, I mean, you didn't know to do that. Would you like to or not? Yes, you were doing something, I don't know, rebellious or what have you, or it was creative, and you were having to search the code. You oh, yeah. To... oh, yeah, we were yeah. messing around with the code, definitely. We enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah, like looking for print statements. Like, oh, he says that. She says that there. Let's say no, she turns into a pineapple. Brilliant. Okay. This is... Or something more lewd. Um, but um, no, it's it's something we British sort of uh, take a little bit for granted. Of course, everyone had a BBC or an Amstrad or a Spectrum. Well, no. No, everyone else had Nezzies and things like that. If you talk to Americans, they just generally, it's even Apple II or a Nez, and that was it. Um, but uh, yes, I, I do find that fascinating. So the first four race, but for for spending such a long period of time, two decades, two that's an extraordinary period, and also to see how things changed from from that period when you know where memory was back then, you know pr a prime concern. Now it's um, a, a bottomless pit of reservoir, like to the point where. You, there's a memory leak and you don't discover it until four or five hours after you started running around. Yes. Oh, oh is it slowing down? Why? Because run out of memory. How's that? Oh, right. Whereas, you know, it just doesn't happen. It's, um, so you have to, to put impose your own, own limits, don't you, on creation. Otherwise, you'll end up making No Man's Sky. Sorry. That's, you know, but uh, it, it can go on a limitless sort of horizon, so to speak. But um, from that limitations greater creativity has spawned do, do you think that's true uh, i think back in the day you know you definitely had to be very creative in order to get the most out of the machines mm. um you know and, and in fact a lot of game jams these days like uh, ludum dare they've got a theme which is essentially a limitation and then you work within that mm. and yeah it, it helps you sort of in, in those ways um i mean there are still some practical limits i mean i was using a a 2D language, for example, so yes. I could do anything in 3D in Shadowhand. But you know, I didn't need to really um, for the for the game I was trying to make. Um, but you know, you can still impose your own creative limits if you need to. And you mm. know, Shadowhand isn't gigabytes; it's not a 40 gigabyte download. It's you know, 300. <laughs> but, yes, you know, that I tried, was... tried to be efficient. Then. And that, that was a pleasant uh, relief that was um, seeing that because although I have a very fast internet connection, you still be like, oh, 40 gigs, really. Okay, I'll just go and make a cup of tea and stuff and read a book. What are yes. you doing that? Multiple teas and a few mince pies. And a few, well, actually, probably could cook an entire roast dinner. But um, yes, do Christmas dinner. And then, oh, look, there's. I mean, you got to wonder when people buy Xboxes. Like, oh, okay, we can now put the disc in. No, no, you've got to wait for four hours while it downloads the patch. To just go. Oh. Anyway, anyway. That's wonderful. Sort of wonderful starts. Wonderful starts. So. Let's talk about your influences. So this next question is very difficult to ask, but obviously you've been creating things for a while, so maybe you can give me some authoritative answer. What are your biggest influences as creators? That's an interesting one. Well, mm. huh, my influences are still the 8-bit and 16-bit computers. You know, mm. I loved those days. Honestly, they were golden years of sort of gaming and, and learning how the computers worked and programming them. Mm. But... I say they're influences, but then I don't necessarily put much of that into 
my games these days because I know that sort of retro styled games rarely do well these days, to be honest. You know, you have to make something quite polished and modern. Um, so I guess all of my games were, were casual games were actually initially influenced by Bejeweled, you know, the famous Match 3. Mm. Um, I played it, oh, you know, 12, 13 years ago and I thought, oh, this is good. I could make something like this. Um, but with a different theme and slightly, you know, change the mechanics. And and I did that. And uh, there were actually a lot of really good casual games around then. You know, PopCap were making great games. Peggle, for example, um, or Bookworm Adventures. And, um, oh, I, I just remembered that years ago I played a lot of Windows Solitaire on three point, Windows 3.1. And I even coded an Amiga version of it. And so even that has sort of obviously stayed in my mind for, for many years and then come back out as, as Regency Solitaire and Shadowhand. <laughs> um, but I've, I play many, many games. I enjoy many games, but, but they haven't necessarily influenced my work in a big way, but more in subtle ways. You know, I can, I can get sort of, I've got inspiration from Dark Souls, The, the Witcher in, in Shadowhand, you know, in the way some of the items work and um, Zelda in how the inventory sorting works, you know, all sorts of all sorts of things add into it, but I'm not sure I could point to a, a one particular large, you know, influence or, or designer in in that way. Mm. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question. It's difficult to answer, and what you're basically telling me is you're influenced by other creations, other designs, and other yes. really good design, and that's what yes. drives you. That's like that's good. See that that really works. That as you said, inventory system from I'm not sure which Zelda, um, the latest one. That's a different beast entirely, but it's 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 it, you're right. It's just like latching onto that one aspect, not that that's not the whole thing. Just that one aspect going. That's clever. That's that's yeah. that's, that's 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 neat. That's uh, well thought out. Let's bring that in. Right, what yeah. about what about you, Helen? Is anything well, I know you... almost coming at it from a different angle in a way? I mean, in terms of the narrative types of of games that I admire very much. I like the world of Fallen London, made by Failbetter Games, and their other games. And uh, 80 Days was another excellent game, which really fascinated me and how it used text. But our games have got much simpler stories than that. They're they're linear, and they really are meant to just sort of drive the card game along and be part of the game world. So I I really have to mention the fact that um, writers like Georgette Heyer are, are massive influence i got the idea for regency solitaire um after reading one of her books and being reminded about how much people in georgian times um used to gamble on cards and how they were playing cards was a huge part of social life um, and very important and how you could win and lose your fortune on a game of cards then and that was actually quite common so so sort of literary inferences as well um and and some people have mentioned daphne du maurier jamaica in as being a possible backdrop for our latest game as well and, and they're absolutely right that that type of writing um has come into it so there are those things as well as it's just generally really enjoying playing RPG games like, I don't know, Horizon Zero Dawn we're playing at the moment, but The Witcher, um, Skyrim, all of those types of games I, I like a lot as well. Oh, I, I, I ought to add something, if I may, Chris. Uh, Helen got yep. me thinking there that one of the things we're both very interested in is history. So hist- history and living in, in Britain uh, is an influence, big influence yeah. on our, our last two games. We actually spent four years in Canada. And one of the things we used to do was um, watch the time team uh, occasionally together. And we would get sort of homesick for, for, for Britain. And, uh, you know, when we came back, we, we started watching Downton Abbey, love it or hate it. You know, we loved it. And, and so things like this and, and, the area we live in, which is surrounded by, you know, uh, Iron Age hill forts and Roman stuff and medieval stuff. There's so much history wherever you throw a stone in, in, in Britain that, um, you know, we've been heavily influenced by that. And, and we've tried to make that love of history come out th- through our games. It is. Yeah. Ext- yeah, we do take it for granted. I don't. But I mean, a lot of people do take it for granted that. You know, we live in extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary country in which it's the occupancy or its occupation by Homo sapiens could be very easily, relatively easily, compared to other parts of the world, be traced back to a certain point in time. Mm-hmm. And it's there's a there's a lineage, and we can see how these people, you know, do you get my point? This is a, it's just that it's thousands, not just two, three, four, it's thousands of ten thousand years of of history, of maybe something in that region. 
where were you know first four eight steps of people arriving in the British Isles going, oh, I think we'll stay here, you know, and it's it, and since then extraordinary things have happened and many many peoples have come and gone and come keep continuing to come uh, here. And so it is amazing. We've mm. got stone circles 15 minutes away from us and things like that. So, right. uh, you know, or, or, but, but also lots of lovely Georgian stately homes and, and you know, amazing historical artifacts that um, and, and artwork and things like that from from hundreds of years ago that we, we only realized when we lived in other countries how how rare that is for some countries, actually. Yes, but when you, it's it's it is unique to. Not just the UK, but I think the Northwestern Europe. I'm going to mm, use that phrase. Yeah. Northwestern yeah. Europe has extraordinary history, uh, for, for you know, for good or ill. I'm going to say mm-hmm. that. Sorry, but we've had interesting relationships with our neighbours for <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and that's influenced us to this day. Even to, well, especially to this day, considering recent political ramifications. So it's it's it, it is fascinating, and to use that as an influence as something that the very world you or the place you live in, you go well. Someone trod in my footsteps before. What were they doing? What was what was driving them? What was important to them, and what's important to me now? And uh, it gives you a really good sense of perspective, and and it really reeks that kind of respect for the past and those who trod that trod um, a path different to ours and led us to where we are now. Reeks in Shadowhand, I think. There's a lot of that. Good. A lot of respect to. And this is what we, there's some aspects of it, there's some stylings and language use. It's very odd. Not odd in a negative way. It's just odd in a way. Why did you, you could have used two words, not seven. Why did you, what's that about? I know why. You you know why, because you studied this. But there was a time when, no, you you would go on and on, because you had time. You know, the pace of life was was slovenly compared to what we have now. Uh, when I'm travelling around the world, I do travel a lot for E3 and GDC, as you do, and I, I live in London for good or ill, and because of that, the pace, you have to run around, because otherwise you get trampled. You know, there's so many people, you have to go very, you have to walk very fast, and you have to know exactly where you're going at all times, otherwise you'll get trampled. Well, shove this to the side. And then you, you go to other places around the world with a similar mindset, and that ends up with a bit of trouble because you're running around going, well, then when you're around you're going, why are you going so fast? Like, well, I'll get trampled. And they look around and go, by who exactly? Because the sheer number of people is much less, and the pace is slightly slower. Or I say slightly, much slower. And that's a similar thing with Shadowhand, the, the, the language, the use of the, 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 the repeated sort of phrases and the structure of sentences is so different that you think oh um it, that's that's an interesting way of looking at it or a perception or engagement even the engagement between characters is very to our minds would be almost how can i put it sometimes naive mm. uh and it is well no that's not how that's not that's not clearly that's not what's motivating this person so how can't you see this and it's 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 interesting. I just found it, and I'm I'm, I'm I getting the wrong end of the stick, but that's what I I that's what I, I got from the character exchanges in Shadowhand. Well, I think there's a certain level of formality, and that's what I was trying to um, mm. imply. Whether people have picked up on that or not, I'm not sure. But the idea that you you can't necessarily just rush in and say. Oh hi there! I'd like a loaf of bread. You know, you need to say yeah. hello. This is who I am. Good day. You know, yeah. pleased to meet you. And the other person has to respond, and then you. So, hopefully, without dragging um, the story out too much, we, we try to keep a bit of that formality in. And the idea of different, perhaps different relationships between different ranks of people as well. Um, mm. Maybe someone speaks differently to or about their coachman than they would do to a fellow aristocrat and things like that. So, just try to keep a hint of that in there. Yes, and def- often skirt, skirting around the topic as well, not necessarily coming out with something straight, you know? Yeah. Whereas now, it's just like, can you just get to the point? Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you know, be thankful that I acknowledge, A, I acknowledge your existence, and B, I said hello. That's pretty good going. All right? Mm-hmm. Now we can get to the point because I'm really busy all of the time. You're not. You're just filling your life with busy stuff. But, you know, that's just, it's just fascinating. Anyway, and that's... The whole being influenced by human interaction, human history is wonderful. So my next question, this this is tough for some people to answer because they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but what developer do you most admire in industry and why? It could be what or who. 
Oh, do you want to go first, Helen? Oh gosh. Oh, I don't know. Where, I don't know. I'd, no, I'd have to think about that one. <laughs> All right. Well, All let right. me have a think about that. You know, I know a lot of people have game developer heroes, but I'm I'm not sure I do. I think the only hero I've got in life is Jackie Chan, just because <laughs> he's just amazing. Um, but you know, I do respect certain other developers. So there's Julian Gollop who made Laser Squad back on the, in the 8-bit days and then the XCOM, uh, you know, games. Amazing, you know, amazing games. Always really like those. Um, yeah, I actually do, I, I also like, uh, I admire Jamie Cheng of Clay Entertainment, the way he's built his studio up and made some, you know, smash hit games like Don't Starve and so on. I, I know him personally and he's very very business-minded, very clever, canny guy. And similarly, Ryan Clark, who made Crypt of the Necrodancer, came up with a unique idea, roguelike and, you know, uh, rhythm game added together. Um, we've had a lot of very interesting design discussions with him. So, um, and, and another person, Cliff Harris, who's the publisher for Shadowhand, you know, he's built up a successful business and sort of goes about things a different way from other indies. You know, he's prepared to spend money on advertising and marketing um, and, and things like that, partly because he's got the money to spend on it, and, and partly because he believes in that and prefers that almost than showing up at all the shows and hobnobbing with streamers and so on. So I guess the people I admire are people that I've met, that I've had you know in-depth conversations with um, about various topics. Dan Cook is another one. More of a, a lot of people maybe haven't heard of his games, but he made Triple Town um, and well, a bunch of other sort of casual and free-to-play games, but very knowledgeable. Um, designer and one I must not miss out is, is John Cutter. John Cutter used to work on Amiga games back in the day um, and when I was hired in 2007 by Big Fish Games to do a PC Mac version of Fairway Solitaire, John was the designer on the project and you know I learned an awful lot about casual game design and in fact this type of solitaire from him which I, you know, I didn't didn't resurface until ten years later when I made Regency Solitaire. Mm. So yes, I guess that's it. I mean, rather than the big names, it's yeah. more people I've I've interacted with who who have really helped me out. So there are more. I I I'm, mm. I, I'm, I could list. But that will do for now, I guess. I recognise a lot of those. We've had Julian on the show as well. And I've oh excellent. I've, I've met him a few times. He's a lovely man. Very um, he's um, he's very humble. He's quite, you know, he's quite taken aback by the, the attention he gets sometimes. Like, I just made this weird little strategy game. Yes, you did, but it was it was awesome. It was a work of uh, extraordinary. To create uh, that in in, to, in that time, it's just like, well, it's just, it, it, it took away, it didn't need a lot of AI involved. It was just a two-player game initially. And then it was just, he created the rules and the pieces, and then people played it. It was, it was ingenious. But um, it anyway. Was, yeah. Mm. The other names you mentioned, I'd also recognise, and um, the, yeah, the the, the Necrodancer Dancer game is just extraordinary. The uh, me feeling around with my television, trying to get make sure the refresh rate was just right, otherwise you would die. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, what, one of the genius things about that game actually is that um, Ryan identified that people often don't like roguelikes or roguelites because. Um, you know, they feel they're too random and they can die too too randomly. So he, he gave himself the challenge of creating such a game where it was all down to player skill. There was no random death. And that's what he, he did with Necrodancer. And I think that was a very clever idea. So, Helen, have you thought of someone? I don't know. The trouble is I know I've met and and been impressed by actually over the years most of the same people that Jake has because obviously okay. we're a couple. So Indeed, I think yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm not um, the only other person I would mention. Perhaps is Jessica Curry, part of the um, team behind the Dear Esther games. Mm. So she's impressed me very much in person, but also with her music and her approach to business and so forth. So that's just another name I'd put in there. Um, I think other than that, yes, you very much admire Ryan Clark's games, Jamie's, uh, Chang's very clever developer, and so on. So probably, probably quite a similar list to Jake actually. I did uh, play Everybody's Gone to the Rapture late last year, actually, about a year yeah. ago. Um, so I remember playing it, and uh, one thing I noticed in the comment after playing it, I then, you know what you do, well, I do this anyway, after after sort of ingesting a game, I then go and see what other commentaries are on, on what I've just yeah. experienced, and 
many people didn't seem to pick up on the fact. No one seemed to answer the question, like, who are you? Mm, mysterious, huh? Yeah, no one. Very few, very few commentators said, wait, if everyone, who are you? What are you? You know, what is the player? I don't want to spoil it for anyone because there are spoilers in that game, but um, it is an extremely beautiful game. It but really in terms is. of in terms of building a world and evoking yeah. an atmosphere, I think yeah. it it absolutely was was fascinating and and, and was. really hit the mark. And yeah. a certain time period again in British history, I think that's something that interested me about it a lot. It was like time travel. It did, yeah, and I experienced it because I'm old and I was there. Well, so are we. yeah, exactly. So it's like yeah, oh, I remember game. I remember that and that phone looking like that, and exactly. I, rem- I remember all that kind of atmosphere. But yes, there's that sense of so who are you? Well, I don't know. This this never answered, by the way. Um, But um, so my last question to you, and I have to legally ask this because this is a podcast about video games. Therefore, I have to ask it. What are you playing right now? What are we Mm. playing right now? Oh, well, we've been doing quite a bit of Horizon Zero Dawn. Been enjoying that. We tend to sit around together and do that in the evenings. That's good. Um, Love the sort of ancient history meets dinosaurs. (laughs) Angle, I think that's really good. And some of the writing's really nice for that as well. I think the characters mm. are really good. Um, we still like The Witcher, play a lot of that. Mm. Um, and our, our youngest son has just got hold of Mario Odyssey on the Switch as well. So we're really, really enjoying watching him play that. That's a, that's a fantastic game. Well, we're only watching him because he won't let me play. He won't let us have the no. controllers. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I have to keep trying to persuade him and then he <laughs> badges me every minute to have the controller back. Mm. It's a wonderful collection of games there. Have you got the expansion um, for uh, Horizon yet, or are you just working your way through uh, the base game at the moment? Still working for the base game, so yeah, we, we haven't, haven't got, quite got that. that yet. No, um, but another game I'm playing is The Evil Within 2, okay. um, which I'm a big fan of good zombie games. Oh, and, right. um, and it's really, really well done, actually. Very enjoyable game. I mean, Part of the problem um, with working on Shadowhand this last year, I mean, I go through phases where I play a lot of games and then hardly any for a while because I'm just focusing on on my game, right? Mm -hmm. So in the run-up to shipping, it's been very hard to, um, you know, set much time aside, but that's what I'm going to be doing the next couple of weeks. I've got Fidel Dungeon Rescue sitting on my desktop here. I want to play that. Um, and I also play quite regularly. I was playing Battlefield 1 with some friends. Um, it's a really good multiplayer game set in World War One. And then we tried out um, Star Wars Battlefront 2. Hmm. And we're not as keen on the, the multiplayer aspect, but actually the Starfighter modes are brilliant. Right. Really, really good. And I was a massive fan of TIE Fighter and um, X-Wing back in hmm. the DOS days, you know, so... Yeah, so I mean, I play a lot of AAA games, but I also play a lot of indie games, um, you, you know, on, on PC or, or console, you know, just to sort of um, stay up to date with what's happening there. You know, huh, if, so it, if, it's, if it's good, I like it. Yeah, uh, it's a really lovely selection of games you've been mentioning there. I mean, I'm going back to Mario, I played that at the EGX this year, and like, there's a highlight of 10 minutes. I didn't have to queue very much because, you know, what have you but it was yeah that's 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 an absolutely beautiful work of genius and um it how they do it i don't know it's just they they just seem to really respect the player's experience mm. i think that's one of the key things and certainly what you do as well you you seem to respect what people are, are seeing and, and doing and what how they how that influences what they do next um, that's a key to design, I think, from all the years I've been running this show and also my own experience of playing games. It's just that, yeah, if you respect the player and their, and their intellect and also respect that, you know, uh, they, they're being not always entertained because not all games are fun because that's a discussion for another time. But um, they've at least been engaged in some way. If you if you let go of that and you forget that and then drive into the realms of frustration, then you're on to a loser. But... Um, yeah, um, the, the Battlefront is Battlefront Two game is ex- beautiful. It's got it's, yes. it is really is. And having seen the latest film recently, we won't talk about it here for fear of spoilers. Um, I can see, you know, where all sorts of things are happening and what influences are going feeding back and forth between the films and the video game space as well. Mm. So, uh, yeah, very good selection of games. Very good. Okay then. Well, that's it for the first half of the show. Well done. You've made it. 
Hooray. Uh, hooray. So you've done that first boss. Well, it's kind of a mini boss, really. <laughs> um, we now go on to the second half of the show, where we delve deep into the realms of Shadowland. Oh, sorry, Shadowhand, I should say. Well, there's another game title there we can... <laughs> yeah. Yes, there is. Although I think it was an Amiga game from way back ah. then. Anyway, yeah. It's probably what we say because you kept on saying Amiga and it's like subconscious. At least that's my excuse and I'm sticking with it. First question isn't a question, really. Regular listeners will know what this is. This is what we call the zeroth question. It's called "Tell us about." So, tell us about Shadowhand. What is it? Um, okay, so let's see. My elevator pitch is that Shadowhand is an RPG card game uh, which uses solitaire-style turn-based combat, which has never been done before, and it's set in 1770 England. And it's about a highwaywoman who isn't really. A nasty highwaywoman. She's a bit like Robin Hood, you know, out to sort of set rights and wrongs and so on. Um, so that's really what Shadowhand is in a nutshell. But but ultimately, it's an RPG game with a lot of sort of inventory items, upgrading of stats, um, loads of enemy fights and so on, and collecting of loot. Um, beautiful artwork, themed music, specially composed for the game, and of course a story that goes along with it. You know, it's a bit of a hammy story, but that's on on purpose. You know, we don't take ourselves too seriously as developers, um, and you know, we like to sort of throw in Britishisms into the game as well. I don't know if you got as far as the uh, skinning a badger comment we put in there, but with some very funny um, little bits and bobs in the game. So that's what I would say it was. I do you have anything to add, Helen? Well, mine's a lot shorter. It's just be a highwaywoman. <laughs> that, that's that's really what I think the game is saying. Would you like to be a highwaywoman? Come and try it out. Yeah. That's great. Uh, that's, uh, I love asking. It's one of my favourite questions in the show is to get the developer go, okay, what do you think you've made? I think you've made this. What do you think it is? Uh, and also it gets, sets the stage for the rest of the questions because we can't ask design questions about a game if you don't know what it's about. Mm-hmm. So you're right. It is a... Very unique take on solitaire. It's not quite the same as solitaire because it's only mm. ten cards, and they're not pictures. They are just numbered zero to nine, uh, and uh, you can. What you have to do is you have to clear the screen uh, of these cards, so these cards will appear on the screen in a pattern, which we'll talk about in a minute, and they'll appear. And some of them will be revealed, and others underneath it will be um, sort of closed off, and you have to. Have to and then there's one card beneath, but beneath in the centre of the screen. In the middle bottom of the screen, I should say. It, uh, uh, depending on its value, you can then interact with the rest of the card. So the other cards, if they're one higher or one below, then you can actually remove it from the screen. That's important. That's that's the real. That's it. That's all there is to the game. That that's is the core simply. mechanic. That's yeah. the core mechanic. So this is my first design question. So brace yourselves. <laughs> While in its core, Shadowhand is a simple game, and as I've just described it. Uh, there are, as you play it, and it's beautifully how you do this, but as you play it, you've added what I call modifications and bonuses that fundamentally, in some cases, change the way each array of cards is removed. Mm-hmm. Or the, 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 the means by which you remove, because you have to clear the screen. That's your idea. You're trying to remove the cards from the, from the screen. It's an array of cards or pattern of cards that appear before you. How have you developed... Not so much the core, because we've already described it, it's relatively straightforward. But it's more like, how have you developed the modifications and the bonuses to the point where it still the game still remains challenging without breaking it? I think we built them up gradually in layers, actually, I'd say mm. is how we did it. Um, so I think we had a few core ideas that we carried forward um, from our previous game, Regency Solitaire, which was just a straight sort of golf solitaire game. Um, with so we had various mechanics to remove cards in particular ways that you could gather as you went through the game. Um, 
But with this one, as we as we went along, we, we changed certain things about it. So we made certain design decisions, such as having um, the only 10 cards rather than 13, um, having different suits and so on. And each of those opened up new possibilities. And so we were just gradually th- saying, well, what could we do now? That now that we've got these different suits, how how can we play with those? And and then that those suits. So, for example, you can use the suits to charge up weapon cards. And then, as we designed the weapon cards, we started to say we can have different classes of weapon. So, so it just built up in layers, I think, gradually. Well, also, I'm a bit of a list maker, and for Regency Solitaire, I had already made a list of mechanics we could have added, but didn't have time or or that didn't fit. And I went back to that list. And added more, the shadow hand. Um, one of the things we did was we had sort of, sort of design pillars for this game. So we said it's about a highwaywoman. So, you know, what are core things there where we've got looting, sneaking around, dueling and so on. And whenever a mechanic lent itself well to one of those or perhaps the scenes you were in, like there's a scene where you're in a jail and you have to find uh, lockpicks to get rid of a large, a large card and so on. Um, so, you know, if, if, the, if the mechanics, they were, I've got a huge list that we still didn't add to the game, but if they complemented the design pillars and the theme and so on, um, you know, we tried them out, and if they were fun, they're, they're in the game. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's how we did it. Uh, I don't know if that answered the question. Probably. No, it's, it's, I don't think you're, what it does is just identifies how I think most design occurs. It's, it's organic. You throw mm. it against a wall and go, is this sticking? Oh, it is. Look, mm. it's still working, and it hasn't broken this thing which we put in four weeks ago. You know, and that's that's the thing is that you you develop it, you throw it in, and say, well, have I broken the basic mechanics? Have I have I now made what once was locked out, and now I've actually tried to do some like the stallion running across. It's something you mm. get very very early on, so it's not much of a spoiler. I thought I'd talk. Um, and it's like, oh yeah, that's, we all get rid of a couple of cars. That helps, doesn't it? Oh wait, yes. now 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 you completely screwed myself. Oh, what have I done? You know, it's just, it's 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 that what any game design is just if the fundamental maths break down and don't work, it's very easy to happen. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I've encountered games, not so much video games, typically board games. Where oh, was, oh wait, I just found an exploit, and then you just drill down through the exploit and then and undermine the game itself. Ah, well we did. Yeah. We did dial back a couple of design ideas that didn't quite work, and you know, and there were some of the character stats actually. There are six which mm. you can modify. We changed a couple of those, even one fairly last minute, um, because the idea behind those stats was that they applied to the cards. Most RPGs, of course, you get um, health and strength and stamina and so on, but we wanted stats that affected the cards, which of course drive the the, the turn-based combat. So. Um, yeah, we did roll back on a few things that didn't work out, um, mm. and and the game did involve a lot of testing, both playing ourselves and using an automated test system, which perhaps I can talk about later, um, mm. to 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 see how greatly the modifications we added affected uh, the outcomes, and to allow me to change the numbers and balance them appropriately with each other, so that no 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 single element was massively overpowered and therefore breaking the system. Yeah. The, one of the other goals that we had, and it, it'd be interesting to see wh- whether people recognise this as they play or, or whether we've succeeded in their eyes, um, was that people can use lots of different play styles in solitaire. So some people might prefer to peek under cards and see what's coming up next. Um, other people might prefer to use lots of jokers and so on. There's lots of different strategies you can use. And as we've added, as you've said, so many other mechanics into the game, we've basically made even more different ways that people can augment their play style we were hoping for example as jake said in those stats that people would play to their strengths or decide a style that worked for them so so that was another thing that we had in mind that it would be a different game for different people depending on how they like to play i do have a question about role playing stats but we'll talk about this later on mm. we'll, we'll focus on this next one now i've got it's um and i think this is ingenious and i can see why i've done it but i want you to talk about it the layout of the cards so the layout of the cards isn't the simple row of solitaire that we all know and love. It's kind of weird and crazy and kaleidoscopic. And and and, and I want you to talk about, first of all, why. And I think I know why, but I want you to tell me why is it like that. And also how you've had layers of things like, you know, uh, locked cards and how they were developed. Like, um, 
again, this, this starts early on. It gets more complicated <laughs> as, as the game progresses, but there are cards with actual locks on top of them, and there are other cards that are only locked after you clear out certain suits. Could you, Jordan, could you explain how this developed? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Helen did most of the level design, but it was within certain parameters and guidelines that we worked out. And in fact, we did even revisit them all at one point when we discovered something about the game and edited them further to bring them within the parameters we want. Um, obviously, you know, having a standard layout of cards, we could have just used that for 150 levels, um, but it might have got a bit boring um, doing the same thing. And we, A, wanted to have layouts which actually were aesthetically pleasing and interesting to play. They looked interesting, you know, and you sort of wanted to discover the best way to remove the card. So that's on a very simple level. Um, secondly, the way you lay the cards out really affects the decisions you can make during a level um, and, and how interesting that is, especially in duels. So whether you've got stacks or sort of mini pyramids or things that open up in, in different ways. Um, but you have to be careful. If you have too many available cards it's really easy to get a gigantic combo and that that means playing multiple cards in a row um and if if you can get too too big a combo so can the enemy and then you end up with a situation where um the outcomes almost become too too random I mean, there's a lot of randomness in the game anyway but, but they become too unpredictable although if you have not enough open cards then the level can feel a bit too restricted um and maybe, you know, a bit more flipping through the, the deck at the bottom. So we had to try and find a balance. And we haven't always got that right. And actually, sometimes we've gone to each extreme just for interest's sake. Mm. Um, and then, of course, adding in locks and things, that helps slow down things like gigantic combos. So it adds more complexity to the level and this idea that you have to find a key or certain suits and so on before unlocking something. So that, that helps us to slow down the completion of the level, one, make them more difficult and challenging, um, but it is also interesting finding that key. And also, if you didn't, didn't get the result you want, you can replay and you now know where it is. So you can sort of aim for that or you can use one of the various items in the game to reveal where that, that key is uh, beforehand. And these are things you can't do with a normal pack of cards. It's a computer game. So that's why we added things like keys and locks and charging stallions and screaming skulls and so on. Um, do you have anything to add, Helen? Yeah, there are a couple of words I'd like to throw in there um, just to explain what the way I was viewing it. Those are puzzle and strategy. So um, when I was designing the levels, I wasn't necessarily seeing them as here's just a sequence of cards you turned over. I was trying to create a puzzle level so that you have to unlock this lock here, but oh, the key's hidden and the key's hidden there. And we've also introduced something with the suits that means this key is easier to unlock if you happen to choose these cards and so on. And all of that then makes or highlights something that is already part of Solitaire, but makes it even stronger. And that is strategy. Um, there's lots of different ways you can beat a level and we've made it so that the, the different choices you can make are even more complex. And we were hoping that that would appeal to people who like strategy games or the strategy side of card games as well. There's, it's micro strategy in how you play the actual cards as well as the sort of macro strategy of which items you bring into a ma into a duel with you um, to give you an overall advantage. And I think there's the marrying of those two ideas um, worked for us and it worked for a lot of players. You know, not everyone likes the randomness of Solitaire though and maybe this game isn't for them. But for those that accept that, then there's a lot to be lot to be had in the game. Oh, and I should ask, add one last thing, which is the automated testing system we wrote allowed us to rapidly test and figure out many parameters about a level, like how big a combo you could get, how many cards you get per turn, um, how lucky you are to complete it, and so on. And then I was we were able to sort of select those levels um, for certain chapters and then set the chapter goals accordingly based on the output of those levels. So I know that on a certain chapter, it's possible to get a combo of 40 on a specific level, and that's a hard mode goal, for example. Um, anyway, there's some insight into our thought process. No, that's exactly what I want to hear, what we tease out of developers when we have them on the show, so thank you. And it's um, when you have random elements in a game, whether it's a board game or a video game, what tends to happen, I've found, is that there are mechanics in it that make the odds or probabilities more in the player's favour, mm -hmm. or even to yep. the point where you actually change the result that you get. 
Um, there's a there's a there's a game called um, Champions of Midgard. It's a board game. It's very it's very successful. It's recently come out, and that's got standard worker placement. But on side, you have these dice, and your dice are your Viking warriors. And when you go out to fight things, um, you have to roll these dice, and depending on what the results are. Uh, whether you successfully win, you, you, it's not in the number of warriors you send. It's whether they successfully kill the thing. And there are many blank or nothing sides to these dice. We're like, oh great, I've completely screwed up. They're all dead, you know. Oh. And it's just there's nothing you can do. And the only way to do it, the only way to counter this, is by having abilities and other things as to the side that you earn during play that make that less risky. You know, shields now inflict damage, for example, or one sword on a dice roll actually means two dice or two hits and that kind of thing. That, yes, it's random, but you can manipulate or reduce the risk by being clever and building a, a thing. And that's what I do with, find with Shadowhand is that you can do all sorts and get all sorts of things that seemingly have innocuous sort of bonuses like all this 2% increase of what have you and you know very, very minimal increases, but you add it all up. And it's phenomenal what, uh, how it can actually make a huge difference. It absolutely outcome. can. Yes, it, it can. And, you know, sometimes you just get a bad hand and, and mm. there's nothing you can do about that. And other times no. you get a really good hand and you're like, mm. well, that was easy. But I think the game is strongest when it's, it's close, you know, and it's a close match. And mm. you use all your skills and abilities that you've, you've got and your sort of micromanagement of the cards and turn the match in your favor. And I think that's where it's strongest. And. For people who think it is just sort of mindlessly clicking through and picking a card, they've missed both the micro and the macro strategy, and that's a real shame because there's a lot, a lot in there. And even watching videos of other players play, I've even sort of, they've worked out interesting combinations of some of the abilities that even I hadn't thought of, which Mm. I knew players would do, and it's fascinating to see them and also relieving to know that they don't break things, but that they complement this person's play style. Yeah, and it reminds me a lot of Race to the Galaxy in some regards. Forgive me for comparing the two, but uh, they're very different games, very, very different games. However, there are some maths and interactions going on which remind me a lot of that game too. Um, and that's a compliment because that game's extraordinary. So they're all, you know, this, this, it's basically programming, really, mm-hmm. in its base level. I did say we were going to talk about programming in the show, but we, in, this, in this case, it is. It's, it's just one, it's if and else going on yes. in, 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 on the screen. It could have been just those Boolean logic phrases in the screen, but that's not particularly interesting. So you've, you've, you've put a whole sort of skin around it, but ultimately when you get, it could be a bit matrix-like, I just see the code now, but it's great. That's not a problem. It doesn't, that doesn't undermine the experience at all. Mm. So the next question I have is um, teaching is a very key aspect to Shadowhand. It keeps the players engaged as they go along. Yeah. How have you um, how have you found designing this? Um, uh, well, because I've made casual games for you know a long time, um, they often do have you know tutorials in them, uh, and they're quite good, quite well right. done. Um, you know, there's many ways not to do a tutorial, like throw up a wall of text and then immediately hide it and so on. And I found the best way is to sort of pop something up which the player you know can read and then perform an action at the same time with the with the you know the the information on the screen um and then of course things the old classic of structure your level um around the thing you want to teach i mean we know like super metroid and all that always does that they lock you in a room with your new ability and you can't get out till you use it and so on um and there's also pacing introducing those concepts at such a rate which um, so that players can understand them and not be overwhelmed, um, and then repeating. You also have to repeat the things that you, you've, you've taught them fairly soon in order that they get to use them again. Um, and one of the things we also did was we showed the game off at um, EGX, of course, you, you were there, and Rezzed, and we watched how people played and watched what sort of mistakes they made um, and then went back and sort of added in little tips or hints and every so often where... Um, players might need them. One of the sort of things I've done also is, as well as tutorials, is sort of like, are you sure? Warning messages early on in the game, not later on, but things like if you just fail to buy something which really might be important or you didn't level up your character because you were trying to exit the screen. A bit like a, are you sure you want to exit without saving? 
you know, in, in Word or something. Mm. Something like that, which catches things if they've made a mistake. And most people don't find this intrusive. They find them pretty useful. Um, and we, we also, yeah, so it's watching people at shows. We also gave the game to um, a UI, or a UX, I should say, testing company um, who, who tested, you know, various aspects of the game on, on random people and, and gave us feedback, which we took on board. Um, and implemented some more of that. So a whole bunch of things, really. I mean, do you have more to add, Helen? Um, not really. I think we spent quite a lot of time thinking very carefully about wording those mm. things as well. That's, That's another thing we spent a lot of time on, um, just to make sure that we were message everything as clearly and consistently as possible, but without but keeping the instructions brief. And that might sound obvious, but just as Jake said, you don't necessarily want a huge dialogue box to pop up with a wall of text that you've got to read through to try and understand what's probably quite a simple action. So, yeah, we, we've spent quite a lot of time on that as well. I also didn't teach everything. So when you first see the lock and key, um, you know, the UX firm said, oh, you should really have a tutorial for this. And I'm like, not really, because uh, it's, it's a, key, a, it's fairly it's a key and it's a lock. And, and I've watched people, some people go hmm, for five seconds and some get it straight away or you know, um, so there are lots of little aspects like that. People saying, oh, you need a, a button that says exit in the inventory. And I watched people and they would scan the screen, find the X button and use that. So, you know, you can overdo things as well. And it's a very fine line between hand-holding, you know, um, you know, and giving them nothing at all. You know, so it's a whole process we, we've just been through. And you know what? There's maybe more we could have done. Um, there's a certain aspect early on where... When your weapon first charges up, it says fire it. And actually, that dialogue ideally would say you can fire your weapon now or you can keep playing and build up a big combo and fire it later. But that's just too much text. So we get people to fire because we know that eventually they will build up a combo naturally because they're having fun playing the cards. And at that point, we tell them, oh, this was a good thing you did do it again you know the so. other thing is uh, just to add to that that the enemies also act as kind of a tutor mm. so um we haven't necessarily explained every single item that you get sometimes the enemies get an item and start using it on you and if you, you if you hover over the card for that item there's an explanation of what it does so you, your first introduction to some things might be being attacked by it and then later on you'll get some of your own and then you, you sort of figure it out from there really yeah, that's true. And, and even the order in which we introduce the items gradually introduce concepts. Um, like I wanted to have, the, there was an enemy on chapter three causes bleeding on you with their cutlass only after they swill some cider, of course. So, you know, gradually introducing those concepts, not necessarily you using them, as you say, but the enemy using them first. Uh, it's, it's really elegantly put together. And that's what I wanted to bring it to talk about it, because some games get it wrong. Some get it, games get it better, um, do it right. Um, and it's just that fine understanding of not treating the player with you know respect, recognizing they have prior knowledge and intelligence. For example, they know how to use a mouse and a pointer, mm. right? Of course they do. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to install the game in the first place. So I think they know <laughs> how to quit out of a menu rather than saying, "Here's a big red button, press X to get out." I mean, yes. Having said that, uh, as someone who's been playing games for decades. It is decades. When confronted with a Xbox One controller or a PS4 controller, we're used to that, right? We're used to seeing a game controller with 17 buttons or whatever. Sorry, it's 14. We're used to that. Most you know, people aren't used to video games and stuff. They look at it and go, what is that? What is that? Do I hear all these buttons? No. And seeing someone trying to play a first-person shooter one of those, it's it was never encountered. Like It's like, well, of course you do that. Why wouldn't you? How, of course you know how to circle strafe, right? Right? Yes. No. I remember learning it on GoldenEye, but that was 20 years ago. Mm. Okay. So, you know, you, we learned this stuff, but, you know, so there's, there's – but having said that, like, I'm going to go back to the point. It is about pile knowledge, treating the player with respect, and recognizing they have some intellect. Of course they know a lock and a key. It's been around for hundreds of years. I think yes. they know what a key and a lock does. Okay, so we don't need to explain that, even though what a card is. So, yeah. Yes, that's true. We yeah. did all that. Oh, one aspect actually is yes. we did pace the game and the introduction of concepts in a way that we hoped people would not be overwhelmed and learn the concepts. Now, the problem is you can't get that right for everybody. Some people, it's still too complex. Okay, so I've had some emails from some Regency Solitaire fans who just didn't understand the dueling at all, just did not get 
what why it was important to choose certain items or how, how did he defeat the enemy and i've had you know other comments from people who bounce right off the game because at first all they saw was a basic solitaire level you know and um there weren't many items to interact with to change the um the outcome so they just saw it as basic solitaire with with just some randomness no strategy and then bounce right off in half an hour so there's two examples of how the pacing was wrong for those people mm. perhaps given more time we could have developed some kind of dynamic system that paced it differently for different people or, mm. or a tutorial level but yeah there just wasn't time so you can't get it right for everyone you just have to do your best for your target audience not all it's not all games for everyone okay i mean it's as some people like Firewatch, some people utterly detest it. And that's we, fine. We, we liked it, actually. So yeah, did I. I, so I liked I. that game very much. I did, yeah. But uh, people mm. do describe that as a Marmite game, oddly enough. I can't. Yeah. But, uh, it's... I think another thing to mention is that um, our previous game that we were sort of building on quite substantially to make this game, Regency mm. Solitaire, was aimed at a casual audience and it was sold primarily on the casual game portals. And then eventually we, we moved it on to Steam where it did modestly well. Mm. So what we were really trying to do with this game was make something aimed squarely at a Steam audience. So we've been having a lot of discussions in the design about whether we do need to throw people in a little bit more at the deep end and show them complexity and strategy and all of these things really quickly so that they understand that, yes, this isn't just a, a casual solitaire game. But at the same time, many of them haven't played much solitaire recently, if at all, so they still need walking through the basics. So that's something, you know, that we work quite hard to try and... Um, message to people clearly but but you know again we've succeeded for many people but perhaps not for all my last question to you both i know all good things must come to an end but it's the last one the role-playing stat like adds bonuses within shadow hand that um do alter each hand as it is played as far as i understand it how do you avoid and this before but how do you avoid breaking the core mechanics of the game while keeping these enhancements meaningful hmm. well i think i alluded to that earlier um mm. in that we do have an automated test system so what right, i can do yeah. is set up the character in any way and right. run it run it on a level and it will give me the various outcomes and mm. so what i was able to do was tune all of those stats so that they they made sense relative to each other and in fact that they were had a a decent effect upon the game compared to your active abilities, for example, which which also, you know, you can use, and to jokers and wild cards. So I was able to do that. And that's why some of the effects only boost you by 1%. And you think, well, that sounds rubbish. But no, it's a significant 1%. <laughs> mm. um, and some boost you by 10%. And actually, you know, that's the kind of level. Gut feeling. And then I tested that gut feeling, mm. and sometimes it was right and sometimes it was wrong. In fact, the test system I developed proved to me that um, a lot of my assumptions and even maths, you know, not a lot, some of them were wonky, you know. And, and it, suddenly you would test it and go, right, well, I didn't realize that or this had this knock-on effect here. Mm. And then I was able to, to tweak things accordingly. Um, and we, we, the other thing is those stats... In Regency Solitaire, you may or may not have played it, you actually upgrade a ballroom with various objects that have an effect upon the gameplay. Now, um, a lot of those things are one-offs, like maybe um, X-raying the, the stock or, or special cards. But other ones were the sort of things where I could literally choose a percentage and it would have you know, an effect upon the game. And I knew that those would translate well into stats in, in the Shadow Hand. And so I got all the kind of ones that we could apply percentage to and, and figured out which ones would be best, best in Shadowhand. And that meant that though he had already been tested in a way in uh, Regency Solitaire, and we knew that they weren't sort of game-breaking there and, and would work in Shadowhand. There's, there's a couple of new ones like Luck, which makes a card fall off, um, and so on. And Finesse, allowing you to cheat, cheat the stock. Um, but again, I tested them all very carefully. Because um, if Finesse is too high, you know, you could cheat every, every card. And then, yeah. you know, you've got too big an advantage. One of the things some players have made uh, some, a comment on is they feel the enemies are overpowered because they've got more health and defense or better weapons than them. And what they're failing to take into account is the enemy AI isn't, well, it doesn't have any abilities, doesn't have any of these special stats, nor wild cards and jokers. Um, 
And it, the AI doesn't have a human brain. And the human brain is your most powerful asset in your armory um, against the enemies. And that's why they need to be seemingly overpowered, because if they are the same as you, you can trounce them utterly. So yeah. that's why that's why they are that, that powered. It's balancing, folks. They're not sentient. No. <laughs> because they're exactly. not sentient. You know, they, can't, they haven't got self-awareness. So they're not like the Whopper, which, you know, you keep on talking about self-play. Like, wow, that's the number of players, zero. Um, that's, you know, and uh, it's, it's for me, the way I've interpreted it, with the, you know, have the better abilities, is that, well, you're a hero. That's what you do. You overcome the odds. Mm-hmm. I know that's not that's my that's my narrative in my little head, mm. saying, "Oh yeah, you you're taking on something which normally you wouldn't be able to do, but because you are the protagonist, you're the hero, you can do overcome the odds, and you do that by guile and wit mm. and intellect, because that's what you do. So that's how I see it. I never saw it as being unfair. The only time I bellowed, "Oh come on!" If you ever watched me play this, is um, <laughs> you may have done with AGX like. Um, it, it would be um, how the, the hand was dealt, my hand. Yeah. That would be the only time of going, oh, really? Come on, I needed a four. I don't need a seven now. Who put, why? Why? You know, that's the only time I start yelling at the screen. And it's not, I'm not yelling at the game, I'm yelling at this, like, this draw, like... The RNG gods. <sighs> yes, it's like, yeah. that's, just, that's just wrong. But, you know, you just make do. That's what I do. Every time I get a card like that, I go... All right, what else can I do? That's what I do. Because you, you give the player so many different options. Like, okay, that's there. What else can I do? Because I'm very much, uh, I suffer from what I call BFG complex. Do you know what that is? No. Probably not. BFG complex is what basically in Doom, in, in, in Doom you get oh, yes, BFG. Yeah. When do you fire it? When what, do you... Whenever you, f- you save it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Never. You save it. That's the wrong answer. You get it, you fire it as soon as it's reasonable. Yes. Just knowing when it's reasonable. It's typically when you've got 700 demons chasing after you. That's when you might want to fire that gun. And that's what I find with games, of all types of games, they have this problem where they give you this, you know, they give you this thing going, this is awesome, but it's only got one shot. And you're not going to be able to use it again for another 20, 30, or I don't know, however long. But it's awesome when you do. And... um, Shadowhand has a lot of those abilities. A lot of those things, like that thing there, it's gonna, it's gonna, you know, the more you do things, it's going to trigger eventually. And when you do, it's awesome. Makes life a lot easier. So I usually have them sitting there, flashing away. <laughs> until I really, really, really... Because I feel, if I've used them, I've failed in some way. Well, then you know, that's, that's going back to the different play styles, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's yeah. your play style, is to save up your yeah. your abilities and for the for the ultimate takedown, yeah. whereas other people would just fire them off for fun. You know? So, again, you can, you can build build a better highwaywoman was sort of one of the ideas I had in my mm. mind when we were coming up with the various different clothing items and abilities and so on that all affect the game in different ways. That You know, you, you get to customise your highwaywoman how you would like to so that you mm. can suit, you know, if you like to hoard up, those those items that's fine you can tailor your you know tailor your deck and so on to, to work that way we, we did sort of encourage with the consumable aspects we did encourage them we, we knew that if there were too many it would break the game and if there weren't enough it would be a shame not to use them and people would start to hoard them so we attempted to put in a certain amount which and give the enemies that's another signaling is, is giving the enemies two or three consumables indicating that hey you should probably have two or three consumables armed ready to use as well um yeah, and with the abilities, there's one which gives you turns a card into gold. And if you're trying to beat any of the chapter goals later on, you absolutely should be using that as often as it charges up because, you know, it, it, you don't want to hang around. You want to be using that and getting the gold bonus uh, mm. and, and taking that forward. So it is down to play styles, but there are very strategic times to use these abilities. Like if you want to max out your stars, you might want to use them at the end to clear the cards. <laughs> Um, mm. But if you're having trouble in the middle and you're trying to get a special item, maybe you'll want to use it then. So a lot of decision-making around those. Well, we can speak forever, as you can hear. Um, uh, they'll do, do audience to, to, to about Shadowhand and many other aspects of it. But uh, unfortunately, we do have to bring things to a close. And Jake and Helen, it's been fantastic having you on. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I Thank hope you, you get a lot out of this. Um, I certainly have. And just to be to remind us, Shadowhand is actually out on Steam. It's running on Windows PC and Mac as well. 
Uh, yes, Mac as well, yeah. Excellent, um, which is great for me because I have a Mac laptop because I have one of those because they can take a bullet and still go. They're amazing. Um, so it's great for travel for that reason. Um, but, um, no, congratulations to you both for, for making such an extraordinary addition to, uh, to the video game uh, pantheon. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful to, to experience. It's a very different and uh, funny game as well as very, very thoughtful and very well put together. That's what struck me about it when I first saw it way back in 2016. Oh, good. Good. Thank you. So uh, it's lovely to see it out, out in the wild. So, again, thank you very much. And you're more than welcome to come back on to talk about your next project, whatever that may be. That sounds great. Thanks, Chris. We'd love that. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show, or actually you're a developer and listen to the show and want your game featured on it, please do email me at chris at spong.com. Also, don't forget to check out the Computer Game Show, which is the Stablemate podcast, shall we say, of spong.com. Bye! <laughs>